to Pro Bono Perspectives, live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspective brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. Hi, everyone. This is Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Carol Cohn, a name many of you may recognize, and she's been called arguably the most powerful and visible figure in the world of cause branding. She founded Cone Inc., led Edelman's business and social purpose practice, and most recently founded Carol Cohn on purpose as a return to her entrepreneurial roots and her life passion to educate, inspire, and accelerate purpose programs and impacts for organizations, nonprofits, and individuals around the globe. And she has certainly done that. Carol, welcome to Pro Bono Perspective. So excited to have you here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Danielle. And, you know, it was interesting in a recent conversation with someone, they called me the high priestess of social purpose. So I I was like, I like that. And I said, I'm ready to go out and I I better go on eBay and get like this incredible robe and who knows what dress is going to be. So, um, no, all kidding aside, it's great to be here and it's great to continue to, to you know, up-level the capabilities of whether it's individuals, agencies, brands, companies, and such. Um, what's amazing is that when I started doing this work in 1983, um, to have a conference, it could have been at a table for two at a right. local restaurant. Um, now it's, uh, it's absolutely with the transparency afforded from the internet, it's no longer a nice to do, it's a have to do. And there are just conferences around the globe um, with this as a topic. There's consultancies of all sorts of different kinds. I think I get three calls a week from people that want to leave their standard jobs and do this kind of work. So it's exciting times, um, but there's a lot of eh, so-so work. So having this conversation with you, let's up-level everybody. So you were one of those people who knew you wanted to do this work well before the new trend, new movement, new generation that now uh, we always talk about the millennial generation demanding that they have social purpose as part of their work. What's your purpose? What brought you to this work? How did you know this is what you wanted to do? Um, I grew up during a very, very special time. And I was just old enough when um, I was in grade school and we got the announcement that President Kennedy was shot and they sent us all home. And then I I was a bit older when Martin Luther King was shot and Robert F. Kennedy was shot. And then you saw the Vietnam War nightly on the television. You saw, you know, the horrible social injustices, the racial, you know, outrage in the South. So it was absolutely part of my upbringing. And then I went to Brandeis, which was a very activist university. 
And uh, yes, I did march in Washington, but I didn't burn any buildings. Maybe it was close, but <laughs> um, we were there during the years of the student strike. And for those of your listeners who have no idea what that was historically, it was when all the universities, major ones, basically stopped going to classes, marched on Washington. There were, you know, riots and, and um, you know, just horrible situation. And at Brandeis, we managed the whole communications, you know, very intellectual. We created the National Strike Information Center. I was one of many. Um, and we gathered information and, and shared it. And so... I started getting this just by natural kind of breathing, the feeling of the times, the culture, communications. And that's what caused me once I got a master's in communications, because I had a history, I had a fine, art, fine arts history degree, which got me no job. And I got a master's in communications. I got a job in a communications firm, did that for three years. And then I'm a third generation entrepreneur. I uh, drove home one day stopped the car, burst out crying. I had no idea why I was upset. And I had this great idea. I'm going to start my own firm. Crazy. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know why. And I started um, Cone um, in 1980. And it wasn't until 1983 where I had my first opportunity to link a company with a social issue. But it was intuitive. It was not a specific plan. And how do you, so as you say it was intuitive, but it didn't seem intuitive for companies back then. When you look at the trajectory uh, of right. where CSR has come and cause branding and cause marketing and how companies think about that. And as you said, it, you know, a couple decades ago, you would have had a conference for two. And now there are the conference space in this area is so noisy. And there are thousands of people that show up at a moment's notice to talk about this stuff <laughs> and understand how to build a career. What do you attribute this shift, this meteoric rise in uh, the focus on purpose from the private sector? Uh, it's, it's, it's all about the transparency of the Internet. Um, you know, that was, you know, in the earliest years, and I was very fortunate to do this work. And we started with Rockport and linked them to walking and grew them from nothing to about 150 million. They sold to Reebok. We then did Reebok and human rights to get them hot again with young people. We did syndicated public affairs TV with Heinz and the modern American family. Um, who knew that the largest, um, amount of ketchup consumed? This is a little known fact is a four-year-old pouring about a half bottle of ketchup on French fries. <laughs> so that was a little known fact, but we created syndicated public affairs TV to solve the challenges of the modern American family from that. So um, what I love about my career is that I can utilize, I'm very creative, but I'm also strategic. And I got that from my mother and, and, and others. Um, the internet truly, the transparency afforded where people, you know, I would say you can run, but you can't hide. You know, when companies could do anything and there was just communications was one way, you couldn't get the information. Um, so, you know, how are they sourcing their materials? How are they treating their employees? Um, you know, were they giving back to their communities? When you could look online and then when your social network started to shame and blame, that was the significant shift. It was in the aughts, you know, after 2000 and the internet started getting some traction. And that was the significant shift. I mean, the earliest years, um, I, I've got a million stories, but 
you know, I was hanging out with um, Anita Roddick from The Body Shop and Ben Cohen, uh, Ben and Jerry's from uh, Ben and Jerry's and, um, you know, Stonyfield and Times of Maine and all of the, you know, even, uh, you know, John Mackey and Whole Foods. I mean, mm -hmm. the earliest days where you had in the DNA of these founders, they wanted to give back. They felt that just taking from society wasn't the right way to run a business. And so by growing up with them and then seeing the internet and then just, you know, and Cone had such a high profile because nobody was doing it. When you're first in something, that gives you tremendous, you have to be the pioneer. You have to keep putting content and thought into something. And that's why I did all the research that I did. I, f I fielded the first piece of research um, in 1993 called the Cone Roper Report. It, you know, it being first, very fortunate. It was in the New York Times, a page and a half. Then we were in Business Week and Fortune and Forbes. And I was speaking all over the place at conferences. And I did research every two years with consumers and executives and employees. And again and again, because my, my wish, my goal was, I knew if I didn't share best practices, this would just be a dead strategy. Right. And so I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And then others started to, you know, begin to jump in. Cone grew to a significant size. Um, the largest, the first and largest consultancy in its field. We sold to Omnicom in 2000 because I wanted to go bigger. Um, it helped somewhat. Um, certainly Omnicom is a very great big holding company. Um, but we continue to do great work. So again, you blame it on the internet. So tell me about your journey at Cone. I mean, you, you stopped in your car and knew this was the thing that you wanted to do, right? And then you built it to a world-class firm that was leading in this work, uh, sold to Omnicom and continued to grow. What, how did you know that it was time to move on? What said, you know, this is the moment? And I, in the context, a lot of the folks that live that are listening to the podcast are thinking about their careers. A lot of them are entrepreneurial themselves and struggle with when is the right moment to, uh, to move uh, on from what I've created. Well, a, a number of things. One, I went to the entrepreneur MBA program at Harvard. It's called OPM. Um, the owner president management program. The joke is we always say OPM is other people's money. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and I went, um, it, it's about, I've got 110 people. I went in 89 to 91 because I needed to learn more about just how to run my business. Um, and there were amazing entrepreneurs from all around the world. And so, you know, you started looking at strategically, how do you grow bigger? You know, how do you have the resources? I was always bootstrapped. I never had any um, investment from anybody else. And so, and there are, you know, there are kind of cycles in the, in the marketing communications and in any kind of industry um, where there's, a, there's kind of a cycle of the big guys looking to buy the little guys. And the first 10 years that came and went, I wasn't interested. But the next 10 years, when we were looking at our 20th anniversary, and I was looking at, you know, how do I go global? You know, how do I, you know, we had, we had helped create unlimited potential for Microsoft, which was their first even looking at what having some sort of social engagement might look like. Um, 
but it became more of a tagline than, than, you know, really execution. And to go back to Microsoft or another global firm versus just working in the U.S., we needed a lot more resources. We needed a lot more capabilities. And so um, the second cycle of the big coming after the small, um, I looked at that because we were 20 years old. I wanted to be stimulated. I wanted to have, you know, greater capability. And that's why we looked at um, about six different firms. And Omnicom at the time, I, a friend of mine had sold his firm to Omnicom. He was somebody I had great, great respect for. And, you know, I met their, with their management and they were very much wanted us because we were the firm, the leader in the world, not just that we'd done the programmatic work, but also the thought leadership and because of my, you know, public visibility. So, um, you know, it's hard to do that. You're selling your baby. Right. And, you know, you lose control after the earnout. Um, and so, you know, and it's funny that people also, you know, Paul Farman, somebody asked him once, like, why did he sell? Why did he go public? And he said he, he wanted the money. He wants some of the money. I mean, it's good to get some of the money out. I was never in this for the money. I was always in it for the work. Because if you did amazing work, everything else would follow. Mm -hmm. um, and Omnicom said, one, I had the most generous sharing of the sale of any company that they'd ever acquired, which I thought was nice. Um, and that was just the way I was with people. But I also, I reached into my pocket and I took out about um, almost $100,000 after tax to build a Habitat house in Boston to honor my employees. And we had 10 days over the summer, teams of 10 building that house. And that was one of the greatest moments of pride that I had when I was the cone of cone. The, the other thing that we did, which is, which is, well, thank you. The other thing we did was after Katrina, um, I was so incensed by the social injustice that I walked into my office on Monday morning. I called my senior team together and I said, we're going to do something. And we took all of our capabilities. We got Omnicom capabilities and we put together a fundraising program called Making Change for Katrina double entendre. And I always wanted to do a penny drive. You know, you, you, everybody's got their jars of pennies and nickels and whatever. And, and I wanted people to go around their houses because we had heard that there were billions of dollars sitting in the cushions and people's couches. If only somebody could gather them together. And we did that. And, you know, some of the Omnicom firms helped us, some couldn't, but you know, we raised enough money to, to build two or three houses. I wanted to build, you know, 15 or 20, but at least we did something. So I felt really good about that. So clearly service and volunteerism and giving back is a natural part of how you operate and think about things. What was what was it that made you think, OK, I'm in the middle of this sale that's monumental in my career Uh what made you think, okay, now is the time to, to kind of go out with my team and build a Habitat for Humanity house? This is what I should do as a symbol. What was the, that connection for you? What does it mean to you? It, it, it's like breathing for me. I mean, the way I approach this field, it's just the right thing to do is to share the information, to give speeches, to have, we had over 200 interns at Cone. Um, I am on the board of Net Impact, which is the um, not-for-profit for socially responsible MD, MBAs and early-stage professionals. I have the only double-term board member 
um, because I just want to up-level the understanding that this can be a career and that people want meaning in their jobs. They want to, you know, you, we work so even harder today with the pace of things, you know, and your average, if you're really going to make it, you got to work 10, 12 hour days. You got to work weekends. You got, you know, you've got to put in the effort because other, if you don't, others will, or you're doing something really complex. And so you got to love what you're doing. And so, um, you know, that's, it's just kind of, it's my, it's in my DNA. You know, my mother founded the first off-Broadway theater in New York. My grandfather came to this country, sold rags on the streets of Atlanta. And he ended up owning cotton mills mm. in the South. Now, I don't know how he did that. I wish I'd, wish I'd been astute enough when I was young enough to ask him. I don't know. But this kind of drive and the creativity is just, it's, it's within me. And, you know, I will continue to, that's why I could have retired after Edelman. But at Edelman, and I built the best team in the world. We had 100 people around the globe. Um, you know, Richard felt that business could be a force for good. I brought in some of the best people I knew. We, had a, we did amazing work, amazing work. Um, we did work for the Girl Scouts, uh, created a whole new campaign to get her there. We reinvented the American Lung Association, Lung Force, you know, really, which, which not only was branding, but it was giving a cohesive identity to that, those disparate organizations and then helping them to have a brand so they could fundraise big dollars. We went back and worked with Microsoft and created Youth Spark. Um, just did amazing things there. But, you know, I got to the point after five years where I recognized I love big t- firms, but they're heavy. <laughs> and you have to like, you know, if you don't have a million dollar piece of business, you don't get the people you need. And so I just, I left um, in May 2015, and I said, and I named my firm in, in three days, Carol Cohn on purpose, double entendre, and I came up with the next model. The next model is that it's a very, I have a very flat consulting firm, you know, senior partners at the center, uh, supported by some fabulous associates, um, and then, then to make us bigger, but to be very flexible, I created the Purpose Collaborative, which is the world's first and largest network of purpose-oriented firms. We have coverage from experts in sports or celebrity or data analytics or creative or digital as well. We've got capabilities in Latin America. Uh, we have Canada. We've got Europe. And we're beginning, beginning to build in um, Atmia. So, we expand and contract depending what the client needs and um, clients really respond to our model. They want things faster. They want them smarter. And they don't want to pay for young people that they have to train. And so we have amazing clients. We take the ones that we want and we're doing extraordinary work again. And you can see how excited I am uh, just to continue to do the work. And you have clearly operated within and driven and created the different business models that drive this work forward and would love to hear your take on what works right now. Clearly the workplace and the economy is changing. What have you found really drives a successful business model? Ah, that's a great question. A successful business model today has to integrate its core competencies and its people um, and its capabilities with having an impact on society. 
And so the name for this now is purpose or social purpose. You know, there are many names. Don't get stuck on cause branding, cause marketing, triple bottom line, mm-hmm. shared value, purpose, social. Don't get stuck on it. We're calling it purpose. It's an organization having a reason for being beyond making a profit. You know, why do you exist in the world? And when organizations understand that, and I've just been studying them for so long, you know, Airbnb, it's it's belong anywhere. Um General Motors is about moving humanity forward. Um, you know, there's, you know, Unilever, which is like the penultimate platinum example. It's, you know, um, helping people to, you know, to, to live sustainably. And I kind of didn't exactly say that, but, you know, a method, people against dirty, um, Lowe's, love where you live. I love that yeah. one. Um, there's so many statements, Panera, food as it should be. And this isn't just in the U.S. This is around the globe. This is now how businesses strategically attract and engage and retain the best and the brightest, how they create active innovation um, you know, centers within their firms. You know, If you look at GE and Imagination at Work, which was their purpose, then they created eco-imagination and healthy imagination, and it becomes the stimulant and guidelines to how to direct the growth of the business. You know, the closer you get, and I say this is a journey. One of my clients said, this is a journey to the center of our soul. Mm. And you're right. When companies really understand the core essence of their heritage, of their reason for being, and they live it and breathe it in their decision-making, and then they apply their core competencies. Um, and so it is, it is, you know, foot, it's not just consumer products. That's the exciting thing. Um, it can be how the product is sourced. It can be where the product is sourced, how it is applied, what's in it. Um, I, I saw an interesting thing the other day that Patagonia, I think, is going to explore baby products. And they asked this really great question, which is the baby carriage, you know, that you see all around the people, the strollers. What's the material that that baby is sleeping in for how many hours a day? And is it giving off? You know, you know, is it is it whale sourced? Is it you know fair trade cotton, or is it got mm-hmm. chemicals in it? Because it probably needs it to be fire retardant. Because there's various laws about that. But asking those questions today that weren't asked before, it's just a it's a brave new world. And the ones that understand it, they, they want to be bold, they want to be brave, they want to be smart, they want to differentiate. That's what makes this an incredible, you know, dimensional creative puzzle to really keep, you know, moving these companies, brands, and organizations forward. Well, and believable, right? I mean, so many of the companies that yeah. you've mentioned that you work with, Body Shop, Ben & Jerry's, Whole Foods, Patagonia, Unilever, these companies, that you believe that purpose is at their core and it is truly integrated. And I imagine that there are a set of companies who like, well, we should have purpose too, right? <laughs> because that's the name of the game these days, but it's not necessarily a historical legacy built into their DNA. How do you think about, and I'm thinking mostly about consumers and uh, individuals entering the workforce, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff, or should we, uh, in terms <laughs> of companies and purpose? Well, you're talking about purpose washing. Right, exactly, purpose washing. You know, the term term used to be greenwashing, and then it got that was in the environmental years, and then you had pink washing, 
And I have to candidly say I am the person behind the pinkness that you see in October because in 1993, um, Jim Preston, the then CEO of Avon, turned to his head of marketing and said, I've heard of this thing called cause marketing. We need to do something because we sell these, you know, low cost items to through our Avon representatives. We reach them in the head. We don't reach them in the heart. And they found us and we, you know, did our research and we created the Avon Breast Cancer Crusade, which was unheard of in those days. And talking about breasts and breast cancer was unheard of in those days. And it, it grew, you know, we created this incredible model. Um, and that went around the globe into 50 countries. It raised over a billion dollars. And a funny story is that I was asked to judge a Russian cause marketing contest. And of course, you know, thank God they, they translated because <laughs> they do not read Russian. And um, they, you know, and they gave me, I don't know, 20 to read. And Avon was one of the submissions. And I was so proud because Avon took what we had created as, as the structure, the framework, and then they customized it for the culture in Russia. And, and it was a great program. It was a great, you know, so the pinkness. So getting back to your question about how do you find the purpose washing? How do you know if there's truth in it? Well, it's really, you know, do a little bit of homework on the internet and follow, you know, social media, um, and you will find, look, no company is perfect. You know, the company that I think is closest to perfection might be Unilever, might be Starbucks, but, you know, Starbucks did race together and race together. You know, all the things they've done, the college achievement plan, brilliant, brilliant, you know, paying for, you know, any of their baristas can go to college and not have to pay back by its online education. Brilliant. You know, they, they did Beanstalk they, and, and they did, you know, healthcare. Um, but, you know, Howard, when, you know, all the horrible things were happening with race and murders and such, maybe murders, gunning down of, you know, um, African-American youth. He, I think over the weekend, he said, we're going to have this conversation with our baristas. It's called Race Together and ask your barista for a conversation about race before mm -hmm. you get your cup of coffee. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, I, I mean, I love Howard. I think he's amazing. I hope he runs for president. You know, he's finally, finally left the chairmanship of Starbucks. Um, but I think that, you know, it was a little bit of a mishit because I don't think anybody wants to have that conversation before they have their cup of right. coffee in the morning. Um, and also it would slow down the lines and, you know, that doesn't work. But, but Starbucks is the third place. And so in the afternoon, you could go to Starbucks because they're not that full in the afternoon and you could have had that conversation. So, you know, look, ready, shoot, aim. I, you know, give Howard every single, so authentic, he mishit, but I think because he was so authentic and had committed to his, you know, to his entire system, fair trade coffee and the like, um, you know, he was, he was given the benefit of the doubt. Most of the ineffective cause you know, company, cause, whatever you want to call it, relationships, are they're just not, they're not deep enough. It may be done for just pure communications. And they're not, even if they're really deep, they're not well communicated. Because to break through, you either do something like what we just did with the, you know, with my special Aflac duck, which is to be totally disruptive and to build a little social robot to help children go through their average 
thousand days of chemotherapy. And, you know, we built it from scratch, but we built it to support Aflac's 22 year, 122 million commitment to pediatric cancer. But Aflac was so humble, they didn't talk about it. So people didn't know about it, but they wanted people to join in to the whole, you know, pediatric cancer, you know, fighting it because it costs a fortune to, to fund. A, there's only four pediatric cancer drugs because it costs hundreds of millions of dollars. So, so Aflac wanted to do something more. They wanted to help children going through that really lonely, scary time. And so they came to us. We were so proud. To, to be asked in there. And they said, figure this out, come up with a solution. We found the open position being that children need the emotional support. We came up because we are, and I will give myself a tiny pat in the back. We're brilliant about the creative. We probably have more creative chops than any firm in the world doing this work because we've done more. We're thoughtful about it. We, we mine for that little tiny little idea. We've had more, we've had some, We've had some that didn't work, granted, but we've had more than our fair share. And when we introduced, we found a fabulous young man, Aaron Horowitz, this small company called Sproutel in Providence, Rhode Island. He makes interactive companions for children with health problems. The first one he did was Jerry the Bear for kids with diabetes. I knew about him. We went to him. We said, could you do this for Aflac? We made him part of our team. We presented it, and the CEO said, this was the best idea I've ever heard. But the best part besides that it is so child friendly is that Affleck is donating the duck to any child newly diagnosed with cancer, which is over 10,000 a year. I mean, the generosity of Affleck to do that. So, okay, I, that was a very long answer to, I think, a short a question. A very big question, which it. is how do you tell which companies need it and which companies are just in it for? the marketing and the branding. And I think those are great examples of the characteristics that you need, right? And in that Affleck example, you just believe that there is a business purpose that is clear. There is a story behind the people that work there. And then you have this excellent creative yeah. idea. And that to me is the the special sauce, right? Because the, the world is so noisy. How do you get to a, here's a great foundation. It, the world is really it's really, really noisy. And I think that there's, unfortunately, there's so many people in the ad business and the PR business and the cause business that want to do this work. They don't have the experience to understand how you, you want to ask earlier question. It has to be done faster. It has to be done smarter. It has to be done in a disruptive way. It has to impact the business so that you have a sustained way of funding what you're doing. And um, the, the short answer right. to your question is do your homework, you know, go online um, and you can find, you can separate the wheat from the chaff pretty, pretty, pretty easily. But the one thing is that there's no perfect math in this equation. No company is perfect. Companies need to make money to have the money to invest back in innovation or in society, depending on, you know, is it the center of their business model, like method? Um, or is it one ring removed? Right. That's okay. You know, it has to be right for the for the company. Um, so there's just a lot more of this work to be done, and that's why I left Edelman because I think that the that the people doing this work really well 
They can't do it well in a big firm. There's just too much overhead. They don't have the freedom. Um, and so that's why there's just a lot of great capability and capacity in the marketplace, which is why I created the Purpose Collaborative to draw those people in when I needed them. And it also helps to grow their business. Right. Such a smart model. I wish more firms would operate that way because it just it seems to make sense for the lever up down and the very needs that we see in this world. Yeah, it's, you know, it, managing a network is not easy. You got to do a lot of TLC. Um, so it's not the easiest thing in the world. But, you know, we keep trying and we keep getting new members that join. We just had a member that joined from Australia and they are in the, the heavy duty sustainability, materiality, carbon offsetting business. And they're opening a New York office. And so it's a little easier to have the phone calls. But, but the ideas today are just endless. You know, one of our clients, which I told you this could be ABC, you know, we could do many, many podcasts. <laughs> one of our clients is, is called Restore the Earth. And um, the co-founders, PJ Marshall and Marv Marshall are in their later years of life after having, you know, brilliant, brilliant business careers. But they grew up around um, Louisiana and uh, they were in the White House during Katrina. And they really wanted to contribute back to the restoration of the Mississippi Valley. And actually, nobody knows this, but the greatest degradation of forests, forest land in, in the United States history happened during Katrina. And Restore the Earth is exactly what their name is. They do landscape scale, large amounts of restoring. And they've got um, a project called North America's Amazon. It's a million acres um, in the southern Mississippi alluvial valley. Um, and they have a process by which they have these trees called eco-grown trees. They grow faster. They survive. They have a 95% survivability. Um, and they're bringing in companies that not only want to do this from a volunteerism basis, but they get the carbon offsets, the phosphorus offsets, they get natural capital offsets. So a dollar invested in um, a restoration can return $26. So the companies that are looking for not just a, they call it a charismatic offset, you know, an amazing story. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about Shell and you're talking about Entergy and you're talking about VMware um, and others that are investing in this as a holistic approach um, to an environmental solution. The cool thing is when the million acres are restored, and that's $2 billion, it's not a small amount, but they can then reduce the U.S. carbon footprint by two degrees. That's remarkable. So, you know, here's a little not-for-profit. We've helped them with strategy. We've helped them find partners to create their key messaging, their website. We're introducing them to... Um, philanthropists. Uh, right now, I'm so excited that PJ and Marv, they're ending a trip in China, where the um, the president of China has decided that they're going to reclaim all the degradation to the Yangtze River. And so they've reached out to restore the earth. They've been talking to Chinese billionaires, the Chinese government, about how can they share their restoration um, insights and secrets so kind of co-sharing around the globe, um, as well as looking for, you know, partners that want to help fund. Uh, they're going to announce, I hope this fall, fingers crossed, a $100 million fund um, that's going to be that companies can invest in. So very, very exciting. Different from a My Special Affleck Duck. But again, now that I'm Carol Cohn on purpose, we've got people coming to us because they love, they can work with us directly. They have access to these, you know, to our great minds. 
and model. We don't take that many on at once because we really want to get up to our elbows in the work, but the work right. is great. Well, on the subsequent podcast that you and I will have to follow, I want to understand <laughs> the creative genius of all of this. And I know um, there's there's only one priestess, but it really understanding like. Well, but I, I have to give I have to give a shout out to you know I've got a number of partners, but I have to give a shout out to Talia Bosch because she's like my she's she worked with me at Cone. She was brilliant. She helped me create PNC Grow Up Great. Um, she then was hijacked or hired away, I should say, by Western <laughs> Union, and she was their head of social impact and employee engagement for six and a half years. Um, doing, I think she's went to every country around the world except for two. Um, she then, you know, left. And then I was very, very fortunate to, to just stay in touch. She's joined Carol Cohn on purpose. Um, I always say that she's 10 times smarter than I am. Um, I just try and, uh, add the punctuation at the ends of her sentences. She's absolutely brilliant. And she, together, we helped create my special Aflac duck, um, and others. And so I, I think that, you know, a thing I'd love to leave your listeners with is that, a great leader has got to have people smarter than themselves around them. And you've got this whole thing about ego. You've got to park your ego at the door. There are days that Talia does things. I, she, she's got the brain of five to 10 people. I'm just a mere mortal. I just have one. Um, but, but you just have to sit there and you got to like, just listen to the brilliance mm-hmm. and the genius and just let it go. Because when you surround yourself with a team of people that can finish your sentences or lead your sentences, you can do magic in the world. To check your ego at the door and uh, the woman behind the woman, as it were. Well, um, that is humble. I don't mm. believe that you just have one brain, given all of that you've accomplished. But um, we'll we'll unpack that uh, at an upcoming podcast. Final question to <laughs> leave time. our sure. listeners with. What is the best part of your day? There's so many best parts of the day. There's also bad parts of the I day too, both. because I have to be the IT the IT person and I have to be the the travel person, and I'm bad at both. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll send myself to the wrong city, <laughs> or it's AM or PM, so not not good there. I suppose the best part of my day is cre- is the creation process, and it's whether it's you know partnering with Talia and creating or our, our associates or clients. Or, you know, seeing a way through what could seem to be a really tough challenge it, it is truly a best part of my day. I love the act of creation and I got it from my mother and, you know, it's in my blood. And there's a lot of frustration with it too, a lot. So it's, you know, it's not a straight line. Yeah, and you're darn good at it. Well, thank you so much, Carol, for joining us. I appreciate that. But let me, let me give it, but I want to give it a something for your listeners. So um, one, we have a great, great blog on our website. So our website is www.purposecollaborative.com. Um, uh, so there's a tremendous amount of blog um, insights there. Um, we have a newsletter and you can sign up for the newsletter there. It is, I think that one of the best newsletters because it's, it's really brief, but it touches on things that I think are really important to listeners which are like, it's purpose 360. It's, you know, what's 360 degree integration. It's data. It's new research. Cause I really think that that's how people grow their capabilities and brains in this field. Um, so, you know, please go to our webcast, our website for more. I also am launching, um, we're launching our own podcast called purpose 360. 
Um, it's going to launch in early October. Um, and uh, again, back to my love of upscaling people's capabilities. We're going to have, you know, again, as this conversation, we're going to have, you know, one person really, really, you know, unpack like a delicious artichoke, but there's no choke. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, you know, all the, you know, how did you get to this great idea, this thing that you're doing? Um, so, uh, please listen to our podcast as well as Danielle's. I also, if you know of a great conference where I can do a keynote or I can do an important panel, happy to do that. Happy to take on interns. Um, right now I'm old enough to take my colleagues, children who want to be interns. So, you know, constantly tending the garden. Wonderful. Well, I imagine the floodgates will open and we will share around the websites and the links that you articulated as uh, alongside this podcast and just really appreciate you taking a little bit of time today to talk through. And I, I have a million other questions bubbling up for you, but I'll, uh, I'll keep myself honest <laughs> and uh, keep us to our time. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for the opportunity, Danielle. So I would like to ask your listeners, what is your purpose? Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at www.commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune into our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.